Stop screwing around. So do you think he's going to get paid? You know, when you text me last night that he got paid, I believed you. And so it was, um, it was really shocking to me what happened. It was shocking, I think, to everybody, but it was particularly shocking to me because I was waiting on him to get his money. And particularly when he said the 60-40 split, I thought, oh, Malvo's really going to do it anyway. So quit screwing around. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Mike. I'm here with Michelle. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Mike. This is episode six of Fargo TV for Bird Dan's Ass. And that, of course, was our friend Don getting schooled by Malvo. Definitely schooled. A scene or two in. We've got, we didn't start right at the beginning there. Um, but we start at the very beginning by seeing some predators. Uh, the first predator is the chef in the Asian restaurant. I've never thought about them as being predators, but but yeah. I mean, the fish are in the tank, and they're happy and serene and swimming around, and they even have the little, uh, looks like the, you know, the things you put in the bottom of fish tanks to make fish happy, the little scenery stuff and everything, and then we see one kind of scooped up and bopped in the head. But the fish will have their day. The fish yeah, will it's kind of get an, revenge. It's kind of an odd... F- bookend of fish in this episode yes it is so we see the fargo team fargo you know as this mob of guys having their meeting that was pretty interesting i was glad that we got to see them yeah um and it was a odd lot wasn't it i mean this wasn't just people from fargo there were uh, the guy with, did he have a french accent an australian accent i can't remember now but he definitely wasn't local yeah, and, um, it was not French. It was some sort of Australian or New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember. But, you know, and they're all sitting around and they're talking to this guy um, who's obviously the, the head guy about what's going on with uh, Numbers and Ranch in the Sam, ha- Sam Hess case. So. Yeah, they had quite an, em- an enterprise of crime. They were talking about um, putting people in a box, probably like a container, putting a bunch of people in a container and... How one of the one of the gangsters fell in love with one of the it's like human trafficking, human slavery, and how one of the gangsters fell in love with one of them, a big Russian girl. These conversations were all background in this in this meeting at this Asian diner. Um, but I don't know if you caught any of that. But one was like human trafficking, and the other was nine hundred credit cards and how much how much yield they would produce from, you know, probably stealing credit card numbers from people. And so they were in a whole bunch of different. Um, criminal enterprises yeah i did i actually did not catch that i didn't hear um any of the background stuff and um but even though i couldn't hear specifics of it i think that even the general population could get that this is definitely a big thing this isn't any fly-by-night little nothing and the people are pretty serious in what they're doing Right, and they're not just illegally trucking stuff around. They're in pretty dark stuff, you know, the human trafficking and probably prostitution and obviously murder. Um, as this guy, this head guy, gives the final verdict on what happens, what has to happen to Hess, Hess's um, assaulters. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't just want them handled. He wants them dead. 
I thought it was pretty interesting too when the ledger reading guy gave the report that numbers and wrench were deployed. That got like grave respect out of everybody. Everybody just kind of shut up and like looked odd that oh no, numbers and wrench are involved. Oh really? I didn't. I I got the the silence at the table because everything suddenly went silent. I thought it was just when the main guy was speaking. I didn't necessarily take it as a specific toward numbers and wrench, but, um, but maybe you're right. Maybe they're viewed as, um, as some top guys, maybe some real serious guys in the business. I don't know. Yeah. Just the final solution, like the final, final. So then we get to see chump's dream, chump's dream (laughs) kind of goes down the drain. But he's he's re, he's kind of rehearsing his dream in the closet before Malvo shows up. Yeah, with a box of Ritz crackers and some salad dressing he's got opened up. Yeah. That's pretty bad. Turkish delight. Yeah, did you I'm sure you googled it. What did you what did you think of Turkish delight? Um Turkish delight was in some kids show. Uh, what was it? A C.S. Lewis Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, maybe, or something. I don't remember. It was one of them. That may not be it, but I think it was. And so we had looked it up a long time ago, years ago, because the kids were interested in it. And um, so I knew what Turkish Delight was the kind of jelly candy that is coated in either a sugar or sometimes they even, I think they said, coated in arrowroot powder or something. Yeah, the clue. The closest thing we have ever probably seen here in the U.S. is remember Chuckles, the candy Chuckles. They came in a they came in a white, they came in a little strip like a white cardboard thing with clear plastic, and they were different colors. And that's yeah, what, yeah, that's ringing a bell. That's what that's what I think that's pretty close to what they're talking about. Kind of a gel candy with sugar or something sweet on top. Yeah, I don't think it's Malvo's favorite candy. No. No. And do you think that's what Chump even meant? He was just thinking Turkish delight, like Turkish bath. Yeah, I think he was trying to do a play on words, and I don't think it resonated really well, because why would you associate that gooey kind of gummy candy with with a spa? I don't know. I don't know. But Spas he, can get pretty gooey and gummy. Ugh. He um he was pretty happy with it, I think, though. I think he had settled on the name. Well, Chump continues his brilliance all the way to the end. What's in the bag? What's can I do the voice deal? He's just he's just a happy idiot. Yeah, um and he even kind of bows up against Malvo a little bit. He says, you know, trust might have been broken last night and I'm not sure I'm happy with the with the split of the blackmail money. So. Yeah, I would suggest to Chump, how about zero one hundred? You just let me the fuck go and leave uh. me alone. <laughs> but money has nothing to do with this. I think as we are and are everyone watching is, you know, it's pretty readily apparent. Yeah. But Melville's yeah. turned Chump's house into a pretty much of a fortress or a quasi faux fortress. Newspaper on the windows and fake-looking guys holding guns out windows. And um, he's set up Chump to look like he's uh, 
hold up pretty good there. Yeah, this was a lot of trouble that Malvo went to. I'm assuming that Malvo spent some time there while Chump was locked up in the pantry. Because, so Malvo probably spent the night. Because remember, Malvo didn't have anywhere else to be. Because his last night with Stavros was presumably the night before. And so I'm thinking he probably spent the night in Chump's house and just really set this thing up. The thing that's curious to me is... I don't know why he wouldn't have had Chump doing part of it as well, unless he just didn't feel like explaining himself or something, because Chump certainly asked plenty of questions. Yeah, Chump would have slowed him down more than helped him. Like, why are we putting newspaper up on my windows? You know, he wouldn't have been very helpful. Right. And he was, you know, his, his game was up, so there wasn't really any need to convince him of anything. Well, that's true. That's true. And I don't think Malvo... Malvo knew the ending. We didn't, and Chump didn't, but Malvo did, so you're right, yeah. Yeah, Malvo knows all. (laughs) So we see Stavros kind of flashing back to the early days of finding the money and his life and clocks ticking and all this stuff. And uh, then we see, I guess we see the call that he gets from Chump through the voice dealio. Right. Yeah, through the voice changer that... He's just gotten smacked for playing with, so... Yeah, and it's pretty... He reads him a pretty cool little piece. Yeah. Once upon a time, there was a little boy. He was born in a field and raised in the woods. And he had nothing. In the winter, the boy would freeze, and in the summer, he would boil. He knew the name of every stinging insect. At night, he would look at the lights in the houses and he would want. Why was he outside and they in? Why was he so hungry and they fed? It should be me, he said. And out of the darkness, the wolves came, whispering. You understand what I'm saying? Um, I tried to track it down. I think it might be Lord Byron. It's Don Juan by Lord Byron. That whole thing about the little boy and how why why should I be outside and those inside are hungry are are fed while I'm outside hungry. Right. And the wolves come whispering. Um, I tried to try to read through some stuff. I think it might be that the Lord Byron story, Don Juan. Kind what do you st- think that meant? Kind of a story I mean, about life and want and needing things and why why do some people get things and why do some people not? And uh, it's just, again, very philosophical piece there that they insert along, along with all the other phil- philosophies that they try to, you know, put put out to us. Well, yeah, and that combined with. Um, the, the setting that it's in with Chump reading this to Stavros, um, we know Malvo doesn't, he's not a talker. Everything he says has meaning to it. So uh, he was conveying something to Stavros, and I was trying to figure out if Stavros was supposed to be the boy who then became the person in the lit house with food and warmth, or... If um, 
you know, I just, I wasn't sure. What did you think? Do you think that who was supposed to be the boy was maybe Malvo the boy? Because then he talks about the wolves coming and, you, you know, we know that Malvo kind of refers to himself in a wolf context. I just wasn't sure about that. There was a couple things in this that I really, um, I wasn't sure. And most of the things Malvo does is blatant. It's really in your face. You can really get his meaning behind what he's doing. And this was one that I thought was a little more up in the air. I see my take on it. I see Malvo turning Stavros against his faith. Like he prays for he prays for salvation. He finds the money, but the money brings him nothing but unhappiness. Ultimately, he gives the money back. He thinks he's he thinks he's resolved it with his God, and then he finds that it hasn't. And so Malvo is making uh, Stavros doubt his faith, which I think you know we've said this a million times, but that's what a devil or a demon. Or a negative force would do is, you know, that's the worst thing they could do. Even worse than killing you would be to doubt your faith in God or some some higher being that you have belief in and ruin that for you and make you feel like there is no higher, better thing than our life here on Earth. Anyway, that's my take on what, what Malvo's up to. The thing about it is, is that we can see the stuff that Stavros is doing that Malvo doesn't get to see. It's like we've talked about before. Um, we have an inside, an insight maybe, or inside look at these characters and that the other characters don't have yet. So we see Stavros going through all this. Malvo sees a little of it, and of course he's set it up, but he doesn't get to see all the reactions that Stavros has. And um, so I don't know. I don't think he needs to see it to know it, though. You might be right. He didn't need to see the two kids, you know, at the Hess house fighting. He set them in motion and, you know, he, he didn't need to see the kid peeing in the tank, get bitched at by his mom. <laughs> Whatever. He sets all this chaos in motion. He doesn't need to see it. He just needs to – he knows that it's happening. Well, then he um, he tells them a time and a place to bring the money and uh, Stavros jumps up as if to comply. And then I thought it was funny because Malvo asked if Stavros sounds like he's going to pay and Chump says, I don't know what that sounds like. And I thought that was a pretty good line. Also a nod back to the movie. He asked to meet at the Gustafson parking garage. Yeah. Yeah. Did you notice that that was uh, who that was, who that's named after? The guy, yeah, the guy of the father-in-law of... Of Lundergaard. Right. Yeah, in the movie. So I thought that was pretty good, too. They're definitely taking it in a bigger way, relating it back to the movie. So Molly goes back to Duluth, and we hear on the radio the stupidest driving weather warning ever, and you hear it like a million times. Please avoid driving today unless you absolutely have to. Mm -hmm. Who drives anywhere unless they freaking absolutely have to? It's, it's just a stupid warning. I don't think that it's unrealistic because I hear it here. So I didn't even pay any attention to it until you just said it. But, but yeah, you're right. They do say it throughout the whole thing. Please avoid ro poor road conditions. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. Public service. <laughs> so Molly, Molly goes to Gus's guess. house and mm -hmm. um, 
And Gus says that he sent Greta away somewhere because he's afraid. Have you ever met a Greta, Michelle, in your life? A real Greta? You mean the name Greta? Yeah, a person named Greta. Mm, don't think so. <laughs> I met one yesterday of all no coincidences. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, she's a lawyer, a copyright lawyer for one of the courses I'm writing from LegalZoom. It was really weird. I love that name. Had you ever met one before? I can't think of one I've met before. Yeah, I can't either. It's a cool name. I like it too. I Yeah, I do too. The Grimly, not so much. But the Greta, I love. It's a good alliterate alliteration, though. Greta Grimley. It really is, yeah. But it's a pretty good symbol in this show that Gus is so afraid of that conversation that he, with his neighbor and his neighbor scaring that guy off, I guess, that he sent Greta away just to protect her. Yeah, I think it shows that he's taking it seriously. What I couldn't get right here, and maybe you'll know, did was he aware that it was the Frank Peterson character? the Malvo character that did that, because you would think if the rabbi neighbor, the Jewish neighbor had told him about the guy that Gus would have pulled out a picture and said, was it him? But they didn't really go into that so much. So I'm not sure if Gus knows that it was Frank Peterson slash Malvo or if he. I don't think I, he does. Cause he just calls him this fella. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. And the guy. I don't know. I kind of went back and forth with it because he did bring him up in that conversation. But, of course, they're talking about why Molly's there and all that kind of stuff as well. But he did bring up the Frank Peterson character and all that. No, because he describes all these other things about him except his name. He would have just called him the, the guy that claimed to be Frank Peterson. Okay. He's the yeah, guy that had a scanner. You know, he looked suspicious it would just he would have called him by that wouldn't name. you think considering that he was maybe threatened a little by malvo that he might have shown his neighbor his picture just to see maybe or, makes or, sense yeah or if his neighbor described the guy he also I'm says that um, Greta asked, or Greta, <laughs> Molly asked if he called it in, and he said no, but he checked it out, and it's the Phoenix Farms car. So yes. he wouldn't have said, you know, he would have said, why, why would Peterson be in that Phoenix Farms car? Anyway, I don't think he had connected it to being Malvo slash Peterson. I, I don't know if he had any reason to. Yeah, well, I mean, other than the fact that he's just that that he knows the answer to this, he and Molly do. And if not all the answers, then they know who this guy is. And since they really know that they're in on something big, you would think certainly they would relate it to this. But I don't know. I don't know. You might be right. I think they may be connecting Malvo being the pastor just in the in the coincidence of timing with all the stuff happening kind of a day or two apart. Yeah. But he, I don't think he relates the guy in the car being Malvo. Okay. I wasn't sure. I just wasn't sure about that. But, yeah, they find out that the car is registered as a company car to Phoenix Farm. So they decide to go there and see, you know, what they can find out about that. And did you notice when Gus walked off, Molly's, like, kind of fixing her hair and kind of, you know, grooming herself? Yeah, I thought that she's, was kind of she's... funny. 
just walked in through the snowstorm and probably driven three or four hours. Yeah, but she did it after he walked off. You think she's doing it because she's attracted to Gus? Yeah, I do. I do. Well, we meet we meet you in the next scene, Michelle, the nurse. Oh, okay. When I saw this nurse, I thought about you. Why? Because you're a nurse. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, isn't that kind yeah. of isn't that kind of what you did? Yeah, well, I did for a whole bunch of years. Yeah, but I have to say, I don't think they were very flattering to healthcare workers. In in this episode, I don't know if they have been specifically the whole time or not, but it became really blatant in this episode. Um, I think we're kind of asked to check our common sense at the door for a lot of this, but they really come to the edge of that sometimes. And if this wasn't such a brilliant show, I would really have a hard time with this because so many things happen that are just completely out of the realm of reality. And people in hospitals are not that stupid. And we'll go into that a little bit later on, maybe, but they really make them look just amateurish. Well, as a non-medical person who doesn't run in those circles, and fortunately I'm a pretty healthy person who hasn't been in a hospital much, I didn't find much objection to it like it's it's super small town right it's Bemidji it's a little hospital um she leaves the she leaves people unattended for a minute or two which she thinks is a minute or two you know I could see it I I wasn't like oh my god she left that guy in this hallway you know I don't know I, I didn't it didn't I could I see your point but I didn't really get tripped up by it so much well Right, and it's something that I would definitely have more experience with and stuff, but you certainly would not leave a comatose patient unattended, number one, this patient who was that sick. But but other than that, before you do any kind of medical procedure on anybody, and anybody who's in the healthcare industry knows this, you check ID bands. And Lester's going to have the ID band on. Also, the guy had, I mean, there was just a myriad of things. We're not talking about one or two. The guy had an IV. And you can't, you know, you can't transfer a patient with an IV that easily. And Gus had an IV that he then pulled out of his arm. Well, the the other guy didn't, the other guy didn't have an IV, did he? The guy didn't have an IV then, but he had an IV at the end, yeah, there was just a whole bunch of stuff like that that anybody in the medical field would have definitely seen and been kind of like, yeah, no, they, no way. They definitely cut some corners. Like Lester unplugs his IV, and that should set off some alarm somewhere at some station, right? Well, it doesn't necessarily set off an alarm at a station, but your machine's going to start a lot. Well, it will or it won't. You can actually unplug that and lay it down in the bed, or used to you could, and as long as it was still pumping... The machine doesn't know if it's pumping into your arm or into, you know, material. It has no idea. Unless, of course, the pressure changes, but I wouldn't think that would be an issue with this particular kind of IV. So that could work. But how does it get the IV back in? You know, somebody's got to put the IV back in. I don't know. There was just a whole lot of things like that that they really do ask us to, you know, overlook. And I think we can. It looks like he left the tube hanging though, and just unplugged the like mid tube, mid IV. Didn't un- 
unneedle it, you know, from his arm. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. The tube's okay, flopping I, around. Okay, because I thought he just pulled out the whole IV. It was in such a hurry. He was trying to get up. So I might not have. Although we did in another, in Breaking Bad, Walt gets out of the hospital, does exactly what Lester does, gets out, sneaks around, does some stuff, gets back in and plugs the IV back in. And he does put the needle back in to the back of his hand. Oh, okay. I don't specifically remember that or I would have complained about that too because there's not a needle. A needle's not left in in your body. It's just a catheter. And the catheter that's left in there is so flimsy and everything. There's not a needle left. So there's no way to reinsert that once it's pulled out. Yeah. And most people don't even know that. I think they get away with that because of what you just said. Most people aren't medical professionals and don't know that. And they just think, oh, that's a needle. You, you stick right. a needle. <laughs> But they come up with another really great name. Mr. Creech is the poor co-roommate of Lester, Mr. Creech, with burns or something all over his face. Yeah, he's got a a face problem, too. There was also some people I was reading uh, some of the message boards, and they were saying that they would— and this is another thing, like the police force would know this stuff, whereas I wouldn't know so much— but that you wouldn't leave a guarded patient in the room with another patient. And not be in, or even have another patient in there probably. Right, right. That's actually what I meant to say. You wouldn't have another patient in the room with a patient that was being guarded by the police, that that would be something that you wouldn't do. And they were real put off by that. And that was something that I had no idea about. So You might have it, wouldn't you have it maybe in like a prison medical thing? It might be another prisoner. Two prisoners sharing. I can't imagine every single prison medical person has a, has their own room, but certainly not a civilian, just another schlump in the hospital right. next to him. Right. So Chaz comes in, and Chaz is looking really severe. He's just like hair greased back and black coat, and he reads <laughs> um, Lester the Riot Act. He and, tells um, him he's done with him. Yeah. Yeah, and then, he tells him he thinks all this is coming down on him, and he thinks there's something wrong with him. There's something missing. Yeah, and he gives up on him pretty much. And he he also says, if you want this to go away, you got to give them someone. And we hear that ominous jingle, the the Malvo jingle, sleigh sleigh yeah. bell jingle. Jazz, I swear to God, I did not do this. Anything? Well, they think you did, or know who did. So, so you got to give them something. Someone. If you want this to go away, you gotta give him someone. That becomes kind of prophetic, doesn't it? Bad advice there, Chaz. Bad advice. But um, it, this really le- ratchets up Lester's resourcefulness. Lester starts to realize that um, he can't just sit and hope for the best. And, and we'll talk about Birdan's ass, I guess, at the end of this, but. He has to choose. He has to do something. You can't just wait for it, wait for it to work out. Right. Um, but Chaz, Chaz is not happy with Lester and says goodbye to him. And then Lester figures out he's got to find some way out of this room. And they had just come in and told Mr. Creech, although, you know, Mr. Creech is kind of out of it, that they're going to take him to radiology in a few minutes. So he's going to go have some kind of scans or something done. And Lester decides to become Mr. Creech. Yeah. He puts the bandages on his face. 
throws the guy in his bed. You know, we, again, again, we have to do an awful lot of assuming. Nobody came in the room to check on Lester during that whole period of time. Whatever was going on with Mr. Creech that they were doing the radiology on, I mean, they would have had to have done it. You don't just take a patient somewhere and not do the procedure and then bring them back. I don't know, whole lot of assumptions and that stuff. But you would think they would find out that it wasn't Mr. Creech when they were doing the radiology on somebody who doesn't have the same injuries. I don't know. Anyway, I can buy it because I love it and I'm willing to overlook some of this stuff. But I swear, like I said, they just they come right up to the edge of this. And it's just something that's... Yeah, I worry every week that they're going to overstep it, but then they don't. And, and they just give me back so much for my willingness to accept this, which yeah. makes even me with, even more. Even with playing fast and loose with like hospital medical rules, Lester's pretty smart. Like he doesn't leave the cart just in the hallway. He moves it into the radiation wing so that if, if that nurse came in and saw the cart or the bed, I mean, in the, in the wing, she might think, Oh, he's in there getting the radiation, whatever. Right. You know, it's kind of smart little things. He gets the beeper. He finds the car. Right. And he, you know, he, first of all, he goes through the employee locker room and just some smart stuff that Lester's kind of changing into this, if not better person, at least wilier, smarter person. <laughs> yeah, he's if if there was ever a question that he has broken bad, I don't think we have that question anymore. Certainly not at the end of it. And then we get to meet the dumbest girl in the city of Duluth. <laughs> yeah, they come in and say they're police. <laughs> yeah, you are. And that was like, okay. Is that who you were talking about? The, yeah, the shopping yeah, the Phoenix Farm. Yeah, cashier. Pretty funny. She was just happy. And should she have not told them about the insects? She didn't know. Well, she told them everything without saying anything. You know, she's just stupid. Yeah. And her co-worker calls Mr. Cosmopolis. Got to be the code name of the year for the Greek the Greek owner of the rest of the <laughs> supermarket. I wasn't sure what that was. It was pretty funny. I was like, who? Who are they calling? I guess before that all happened, Gus and Molly are in the car kind of noodling out the case in their heads. But um, Yeah, they're talking about the, the shotgun pellet. And Molly says that that means that he couldn't have been knocked out in the basement the whole time. So they're finding out, Molly is certainly piece by piece, Lester's whole story is just falling apart. Because remember, Lester made it look like he was knocked out in the basement the whole time with Pearl. Yeah. But, you know, if Lester gets away with what he just did in this episode, he really covers up some pretty good tracks here. He does, but I don't see how he can get by with that one because he would have had to have been upstairs when Vern got shot. There's no other way around it. They pulled a shotgun pellet out of yeah, his maybe hand. Yeah, the, maybe the killer slash unknown person throws Lester down the stairs or something. Right. I don't know. Yeah. So then we see, um, well, there's that awkward silence after they call for the 
for the grocery store owner. Yeah, the Cone Brothers there. silence. That was yeah. that was awesome. It was great. It was like the awkward and long. And then Molly's like, "Well, okay, then, just have him call me." And and she tells him what it's in reference to, which I thought was funny. And I'm not sure they would have done that, but I didn't hear anybody else question it. So maybe it was just my own paranoia. But I wouldn't think she would say, "Tell him that that we were here in reference to one of his cars." being used in some situation or something. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of weird. But anyway, they decide to leave for another cup of coffee. Then we see Stavros in the parking garage. And he's yeah. going up to the top, and it looks really, really uh, like the movie parking garage. Smaller. It's a lot smaller. But, yeah, snow and right. kind of wintry. Yeah, if you ever need to do a money exchange, Michelle, do not do it on the top floor of a Midwest parking garage okay let me let me write that down do not okay got it you'll get shot in the mouth or something bad will happen <laughs> yeah it's it's absolutely nothing good did you notice that when he was sitting there and he's waiting and he starts doing his little flashback scene it's in reverse this time what he's what they're showing remember before when he was sitting there when chump called him he's thinking about finding the money and when they're flashing back in this scene, when he's sitting up there, he's moving in reverse and he's covering up the money. Well, that's what he's thinking about doing is putting it back. So Yeah, that was pretty... I really like the way that they handled that. Yeah, and then we get to see Samanko in his glorious underwear in the snow. That was sweet. That was something. There's yep. no better feeling than being waking up on a cold morning, going out in your long johns in the snow. I'm yeah, serious, man. I've done it in like Lake Tahoe going skiing and stuff. You walk out, you're like, oh, yeah, it's good to be alive. It's all fresh and clean, and um, you don't give a damn about anything. You're just there in your long underwear. Okay, I'm going to assume you're playing. No, I'm serious. <laughs> so you've walked outside in, in a. Yeah, he's out in the cabin. He's, not, you know, he's not in mini, downtown Minneapolis streets, he's in the cabin right. in the woods. I would still think he'd be cold, but what do I know? He's got his coffee. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's he's definitely set up. But Semenko will not say love, the word love. No, he's not. Well, and he's he's not certainly going to tell Dimitri that Stavros loves him. He's like, nah, not going to do that. Semenko, who does everything and more that Stavros even mentions, he like goes out of his way, and that was his line in the sand. He's not going to do it. Samanko doesn't express emotion. Unless it's anger. So then we see another callback to the movie when Stavros doesn't want to pay the $2 for parking for five minutes. Why? Why would he not just pay the $2 and not cause and call this attention to himself? I understand why in the movie, when the guy's chin was falling off, when Bashimi's chin was falling off, why he wouldn't want to stop and try to, you know, get out the money. But I didn't understand, other than just the nod to the movie. It's still the same. It's like Bashimi should have paid it, too. By the way, it was more when Bashimi was in the movie than it is now. Yeah, I I saw that. Right. That's pretty good. In 2006, well, you know, we're right before the recession, so maybe. But Buscemi could have avoided a lot of hassle just by paying the three or whatever dollars it was. You know, he had to kill the guy. He had to screw around with the guy. He had to break through the gate. 
Right. Just pay the damn money. Would, that's what made it funny. Is like just pay it. You got a million dollars in your in your suitcase. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Part with two. I know. Uh, but he he is not gonna pay. He tells him he has to open the gate. Just open the gate. The Lord demands it. That's what he says. And the guy's like, well, okay, then. And he opens the gate. Yeah. So then we see more Gus and Molly. And Gus is mainly bothered by two-faced people more than anything else. <laughs> yeah, Molly says. So the violence and the murders aren't what gets you. It's the fact that someone lies and, you know. And and pretty- that it's hard to live in this world. And Gus says you would you wouldn't imagine how hard it is. That was kind of a weird thing. Gus being like overly in- intellectual there. Gus, I, yeah. Gus is appearing to be somewhat stupid to me, you know, like more than just a little stupid, like pretty stupid. Yeah, I definitely got that in this episode as well. Gus, um, they're they're showing him as it's like his IQ is declining as we go along. I didn't picture him being stupid before, just kind of naive, and now we're seeing. Uh, I don't know, but I I definitely agree with you. But he kind of, I think Gus has this innocence about him in that, you know, he's talking about rabid dogs and they don't know any better. But when people know better, they should do better. And you would picture them doing better just because they know better and be better. And, you know, and he hasn't seen the uh, the opposite of that so much. But this line about being hard to live in this world gives him some other worldly presence that I don't think I've seen in him before. Like, like he's got some angle on the world that Molly doesn't know about that, and we don't know about that, but he knows about. Like, you, you couldn't imagine how hard it, how right you are, how hard it is to live in this world. <laughs> yeah, I, just I don't know. It was it weird. As, it was a weird. As, well, yeah, but like I took it more as him saying with this kind of morality. You know better, so you do better. But, you know, this is the second time that Molly said that to him. Well, not specifically to him, relating it to him. I don't know how you live in the world with that. But remember the spiders in the neck the first night they met when they were at the diner and she said, um, I don't want to live in a world where stuff like that can happen. Yeah. You know, so she kind of brings that up again with Gus, how, how, you know, it's hard to live in a world like that. So we see Chump waking up to scanner, guns, and duct tape, and and no sixty forty deal. Yeah, Malvo says he's thought about it, and that just doesn't work for him. And Malvo backlights him. That was harsh. That was really bad. That was cold, and that took us into an area of darkness I don't think we've seen on the show before, maybe. Yeah, it was dark because it was so premeditated. Yeah. I mean, down to every step, down to uh, shooting out the windows and and listening on the police scanner, making sure everything's going as planned before he leaves the house. It was... All, for, all for the sake of just a distraction. Yeah. Yeah, for nothing. I mean, you know... In hindsight, you were completely right. Chump had to die. But, geez, I mean, what a cold-blooded way. Malvo could have slit his throat and left him there with the gun so he doesn't wait for his demise. I mean, I guess 
Well, no, because even the police are going to know that he was set up. I mean, he's duct taped and the gun's empty. Yeah, he's he's obviously set up, but the police, right. won't, they won't know that for another 20 or 30 minutes. Right, but if his neck were cut, you know, and he were killed that way, so he didn't well, have he's to not merciful. He's not merciful. No, he's not. <laughs> he's also very smart. The show, the smart things to, that the show does overcomes the silly things they leave out, like the hospital stuff. Like Malvo shooting the car door five or six times and not just mm-hmm. shooting at the people where the bullets would go, you know, be unseen. Right. He makes it really like look dramatic without doing anything. He doesn't really kill anyone, but he makes these bullet holes everywhere and he has the gun sticking out the window. It's it's really well thought out. That that I love about the show, the details to that stuff. Yeah, they really really do, and that's why it's so surprising to me when there's so many things that are so completely unreal that we're asked to buy, but then they do all of this things that are, they put so much attention into the other details, but I guess you're right. I guess that is what, what makes it interesting. What did you think about when Malvo says to Chump that Turkish delights disgusting and that's when Chump pulls the trigger. I thought that was brilliant to the end because Trump's sitting there with this shotgun in his hand. And it's pointed right at Malvo. Malvo's standing in front of him, and he goes, "Have you ever had Turkish delight? It's disgusting." And that was like the the straw that caused Chump to then pull the trigger. And of course, the gun was empty. And Malvo says, "You know, basically couldn't have respected him if he didn't at least try it." But yeah, but that was funny. That that's what caused it. He was mocking. His spa. So we're going to find out where Lester hides the hammer or hid the hammer. That was, yeah, that was really good. And we did find out that Lester did it. It wasn't anybody else and where it was. And that was pretty good. Kind of a Shawshank Redemption thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And then Lester uh, Lester puts his little plan into motion here. We see him, takes the hammer, takes it out of the plastic, takes pic- pictures of Pearl from under the stairway. Have you ever been in a basement, Michelle? I have, yes. They're creepy places. When he took those those boxes and started opening them of the finding the pictures of Pearl, it made me just think like, God, she's been under there. She's like a ghost under there under that stairway in the dark, cold basement. When he first comes in the basement, we've seen him do it a couple times, he kind of shudders like, ooh, it's cold It's cold and dark down here. Basements are not fun places. They're scary, creepy, dark, <laughs> cold places, and especially in this, sh- in this show. Well, yeah, and he knows exactly where Pearl's glamour shots. This is Pearl younger and glammed up and everything, and he knows where that is. He doesn't sift through photos to find this he goes straight to it which is even creepier because it suggests maybe he's went down there before to view the photos of pearl i mean because you don't just go straight to a photo like that i don't know he didn't open he didn't open a box or two to look like i thought he looked in one or two and then he 
thought he moved the top box and pulled the other one out. Maybe. Maybe I'm thinking of it wrong, but I don't know. It's just it was really creepy that he knew exactly what he was looking for, and he found it so fast. And um, and then the panties. The did did he have to go there? Yeah, he did because he's planting this evidence on Chaz, and Chaz is like masturbating in the garage. Ah. Uh. Or wherever that is, the basement, the garage. Yeah, the and garage. And he's, he's like playing into that, like this guy's a pervert and, you know, it's all connected, I think. Yeah, but the dirty panties, well, I don't know. Well, that's that. Okay, okay. Well, see, the reason for that, Michelle, he's just, <laughs> yeah, he's just setting no. up Chaz and he, then he goes to, he goes to uh, get ready to leave and he realizes, like, he sees the family portrait and he's like... First thought is like, oh, he's gonna back out because he realizes how bad it this is, and that. But yeah, because he, he stares at Gordo. He amps you know, it up though. I know, I know. He stares at Gordo, and you think, okay, he's gonna pull all that back out. He's had second thoughts because we have to think this has happened really quick. They were taking uh, his roommate down in ten minutes, right? So in ten minutes' time, Lester has formulated this plan or at least gotten it going and he can't be away from the hospital very long. We know that. And in this amount of time he has formulated, he's going to set Chaz up, what he's going to do to set him up, where he needs to go, what he needs to do. And then as he gets there and he stares at Gordo and you think, okay, he's going to have second thoughts, going to break up this family. First it shows the family and then he stares just at the kid and that's not what he's doing at all. But he needs the, he needs to do that because when he was putting the stuff in Chaz's locker behind the guns, that stuff that's a dead end. Nobody's going to need to look in Chaz's locker. Um, but now they do because they're going to find the gun in Gordo's backpack at school. They're going to go and check out the family at home. They had no reason to. That stuff would have just been totally hidden away in Chaz's locker right. had he not right. done that. And that was one of the things that I read. Uh, one of the thought processes that he would be found out at school. And another one was that his mom would find it. And when she found it, the gun in his backpack, because you would assume she would go through his stuff, considering that he is portrayed as having some kind of autistic tendencies and stuff, then she's going to go down and she's going to find it. Maybe. Yeah. That's a good point too. Yeah. But Lester slips out of the house. Gordo sees him, but I guess being autistic or just maybe seeing Uncle Lester doesn't mean much to him. Right. Doesn't even say hello. He just like, well, okay, goes back to whatever, making a drink or whatever he's doing. Mm-hmm. And Lester's scot-free. Yeah, he makes it back to the hospital. So uh, we see we see Gus and Molly talking about the fable about the guy giving everything away. And Molly's trying to noodle it out and figure out what, what, well, what does that mean? Why didn't he just volunteer? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then Gus says he never wanted to be a cop, but he wanted to be a mailman. Gus has pretty much backed his way through his life, don't you think? Yeah, that was really sad. Um, It was almost like he was just kind of, uh, he, he fell into this position that he never wanted. Did you hear his reasons? Because he liked the sense of community and he wanted to bring people their checks and their Christmas gifts. He has this very innocent way of looking at stuff. I mean, mailmen also bring bills and foreclosure notices and, you know, bad things. But that's not how he's viewing 
what he would be doing. But they don't bring bags with people's heads in it. No, they don't usually bring stuff like that. So he's he's the opposite of this total go-getter crime guy who'll do anything for money. And, you know, he's, he, Gus just wants to be happy and left alone and, you know, kind of kind of not make decisions and not be on the spot. And he's being forced out of that pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think they're making him look like an appealing character like that? He's less appealing now because he's because he's oh, he's pitiful. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. I mean, even even before the ending part of it, he's he's showing himself. I don't know. I I don't want to see his compassion and his naivete as being uh, weak, but I can't help but view him as a weak character. What else would it be? I don't know. It's totally weak. So we be, we go back and we see Chump's Armageddon. Yeah. Kind of a one-way Armageddon all coming in. That was really, that was sad. I would have been working on that mouth duct tape. Well, he did finally get it loose at the very last minute. but not- Yeah, just as the tear gas is coming through the window and they're breaking in. You know, he's trying to yell at him and tell him. The tripwire was the kicker. Remember, because literally, good pun. (laughs) I don't know that it would have happened like that because they might not would have just been so aggressive if, when the police got there, they hadn't tripped over that wire and got some fire levied toward them. That that was the straw in that situation that really got it all going, and you know. Poor Chump. You know, his head's hanging and the blood's dripping from his mouth and he's he's not going to get Well, his... in keeping with Birdan's ass parable, he, his final word is wait. Wait, wait. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they don't wait. They don't wait. I don't know if they heard him. But he didn't say stop or, you know, he didn't say, not even stop, but he didn't say... I'm innocent or something. He's just wait. Right. Or, or even help me or something like that. If he had yelled something, maybe there was a, uh, you know, hostage in the house or something because they're not even looking at it like that. And I would think maybe they would in that situation, but he didn't, he, of course, I'm not sure my mind would be thinking what's the best word I can say as they're firing these, Huge help. weapons, yeah. Help or something, not, not, not wait. We see Numbers and Wrench um, surround Malva with two different cars, and they, in the snow, the snowstorm's getting worse and worse, by the way. And again, they, they pinch him off in this traffic in the snow, and then Malva pulls another indiscernible, you know, escape. He escapes when he shouldn't be, have been able to. Yeah, he's a, he definitely uses the cover of the of the whiteout to his advantage, where it seems like it's a disadvantage to other people, to everybody else. But he's able to take this and use it to his advantage. It's all it's goes back. But it's to one that. it's one level higher than that. Like he's gone when he shouldn't have been gone. Like in the basement, he's mysteriously gone for one second behind the car. He does use the whiteout. He like eludes them through the snow. But that very first escape, that was inexplicable. That was like a, you know, that was a 
other world, otherworldly escape, I think. Yeah, very snake-like. I think somebody put it like that. Because he did kick the door when Ranch came up to the door and knocked Ranch down, but then somehow he was able to get out the other side and make it to the, the end of the car. And people were likening him to a snake like being able to slither out of the basement and slither out of the car. Yeah, we've said that before, too. Right, right. So he gets, he traps numbers, he kind of waylays him and gets him to admit that Fargo is the is the pursuers, or, or are the pers- pers- his pursuers. You know, Fargo being the team of phone, the phone room and the guys in the restaurant right. and the, the whole right, enterprise right. of Fargo. Waiting. He says, Who? Who? Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I did not get that. Yeah, he says, Fargo, it was Fargo. But that was interesting, too. Gus saying, Wait, we should wait. Like, Chump said, wait, Birdan's ass is kind of the wait between two decisions. Anyway, so that's the end of numbers. Yeah, and did you notice that when the police officer runs into, because at this point, Gus and Molly are already out there. They went out, but the police officer had, had run into the diner that they were in having this cup of coffee, and he says that basically there's World War Three out there, and... Uh, they're shooting up and down the block, and Molly turns around and says, "Call nine one one." I was watching this with my younger daughter, and she got this really strange look on her face, and she goes, "Aren't aren't they nine one one?" Yeah, more nine one one though. They do yeah, need backup. I, There's all kinds of people. Right, but you would think if they called on the police scanners or on their police communication devices, that that would get help there quicker. The guy who just ran in to tell him that maybe has a radio in the car or something. Yeah, that I thought is it was a good so point. funny for her to call nine one one. That's interesting though. It's kind of like the police even need help. Like this is over their heads. They're in over their heads, you know. Way over, yeah. And then Lauren Lauren does kind of walk through the snow into like a ghost. He just disappears, and then we see these gunshots. Or here, mainly here, we see a couple flashes, but. Gus panics and just shoots at the sound of the gunshots. Yeah, he says halt, and, you know, we're not getting any halts. Do you think Gus is the one that shot her? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of different theories going around that maybe um, she was already shot and was just doing the stumble toward Gus at that point, and that's why she didn't identify herself or... Um, I don't know. There's I some guess. clues and non-clues. Like there's no blood, which is a good thing, but the but the signs and the clues from the scene and the way it's set up all point to Molly being dead because it's like really really sad music. Like if she popped up and go, "Ooh, that was a close one." That would have been kind of hokey, right? She was like out. She's either knocked out or she's dead. You know, I well, read some of the message boards too, like a getting hit in the chest in a bulletproof vest might knock the wind out of you and knock you out. 
But they, why would she have had on a bulletproof vest to I go down there and check Lester's car? That that wouldn't be realistic to me. Right. But but maybe she's hurt, and uh, I mean, you know, you could be. I don't know. I would think you could be shot and hurt, but she doesn't have to be dead. No we'll blood, see. though, and they they aren't afraid to show blood. They show Malvo tricking people with blood. They show people's throats getting cut like red oh, wedding style. Yeah, they're not they're not afraid to show it. I mean, even all the blood that that Malvo lost to leave his trail, that was quite a bit of blood. Yeah. I mean, that was a lot of blood to be pouring out of the back of your hand like that. I really like the snow in this all this trans the, the way these scenes transpired though. It made me think like snow is life, like it's, it's unknown. The next moment of life is always unknown. And what happened to Molly is unknown through the snow. You know, it's like, what happened? How did it happen? We don't, we can't ever know. I don't know. Well, it was a, we it might was, know. Well, we'll I hope uh, they tell us. Well, we, in, as in life, we ultimately know a minute later, but then the next minute's always ahead of us, too. I don't know. I thought it was a pretty cool metaphor. You know, people liken this scene to the True Detective six-minute uncut scene. They People do. Re- they did. Yeah. People really loved this, and I realized that it wasn't the same that that there was cuts in this. But I I read on three or four different places where they were comparing how good these uh, shootout scenes were, and how we're like raising the bar for this in television. And I thought that was interesting because I know that was one of your favorite scenes, I think, in the True Detective anthology, whatever. So, and I thought this was really good. This Yeah, whole- that was a cool scene tech- for the technology of it in True Detective. This was a cool scene for the, for the theme and the story of the show. Right. It just kind of raises the bar on what they do. I don't think we're going to be as impressed with other shootout scenes and stuff, unless they can match that either in the technology, like you were saying, or in the suspense. And uh, I don't know, just all of the detail that went into this one. I, I think it's good. The snow is really bad for um, uh, Samanko finally gets his clothes on. First of all, he's driving Dimitri through this bad snow, too. And uh, we see them, and then we see Stavros driving, also in the bad snow. Um, Stavros appeases the gods, though, we think, by putting the money back. Or at least he might think that. I think it was great in that we can have another Fargo, maybe. Remember we talked about that? How this money can go on to be the uh, central theme of the destruction in other people's lives if they choose to do that and move forward with that, which that's perfect. He put it back exactly where he got it. Um, he did use, he he took the ice scraper, and I don't think he would have had the original ice scraper. Remember, it's sealed, so I'm not sure if that was just an ice scraper out of his car or if we're supposed to think that he took the ice scraper, because remember, he was going to pay the money, so he wouldn't have taken the ice scraper with him. He wouldn't have broken the the glass or opened up his frame. Yeah, but every scraper. car in Minnesota is going to have an ice scraper. Right, right, but it did look the same. So I well, thought they that... all, they're all they all closed. I mean, it's, okay. it's the universal 
symbol. <laughs> I mean, it is. They don't. There's no like super duper ice scraper and okay. then a cheap ice scraper. An ice scraper is an ice scraper, and they um, are usually red like that. You know, it's a perfect symbol. Okay, oh, I'm not. I mean, I didn't know, but I thought that was interesting that that he had it with him and he marks the spot again. And I think that's great. I think in his mind, he's trying to make up for the bad he's done. He's trying to make amends. And um, maybe he's also, I think, trying to escape the wrath of God. Like, please take my give me give me forgiveness for forgive me for all the things that I said I was going to do and didn't do and. Let me undo this, this wrath, this uh, plague, this series of plagues you're sending it down upon me. But I kind of wonder what he's got to think about all that because he still hasn't paid the ransom, and whoever's blackmailing him is still going to be coming after him in this situation. I don't think he's con- as concerned about that as he is about feeling like he's being punished by God, but he's still going to have that. Yeah. But God is, his, God is his main worry right now. Like he, he, he offended God somehow and he's got to write that before anything else. Right. But you're right. He does change his plan. He was going to give that money off to the, um, to the kidnapper or to the ransom, whatever. Yeah. To um, the blackmailer. And then he just decides he's not going to do it. And that's not going to just go away. He didn't have that enlightenment. On the road, though, he kind of had it at the top of the garage, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly when he had it, when he was seeing the stuff in reverse. And then he said he knew what he had to do. Yeah. He said it was like a sign from God that that's what he had to do. So So. the snow snow and the mystery of life clears up and everybody's happy and smiling, but only for a minute. As Semenko and Dimitri keep driving along and they see uh, the rain of fishes come down upon them. And um, that causes their car to crash. And Semenko's thrown out of the car and it looks like he's killed. And Dimitri's rolled over in the car and looks like he's killed. And that, I think, completes the plagues. That's the 10th plague is the death of the first son. Um, but we see we see um, um, Stavros come up upon that and finds his son dead. Yeah, this is another <clears throat> another one that they've... This is the coincidence to end all coincidences unless they show us something different. I really hope they make this believable. This is going to be the cross of the line to me, I'm afraid, if they don't. Fish don't rain out of the sky in a situation like this, certainly. And we're given no indication of where this came from. Right. Well, not we don't have the reason or or the way the effect was pulled off by Malvo or by nature. No, so we don't know yet. Yeah, and I mean, how could Malvo pull that off? We, as a matter of fact, Malvo couldn't pull that off not at the moment because we're seeing this in real time, kind of. And Malvo is just escaped numbers and maybe ranch. We don't know, but but he's just. He's handling that. He's busy slitting numbers throat. And around that same time is where the fish are falling on Schmenko's uh, car. And they've got to explain this one. 
because everything else I can buy, everything else I can overlook. And I'm, I'm excited to see what they say, what this is from. Because, you know, there, there is a phenomenon that after a storm, uh, these animals can be sucked up or during a storm or whatever, and then draw, small animals can, and then dropped in weird places. Yeah, but, but fish in a lake in Minnesota in the middle of winter would be frozen. Right, right. That's, that's it. The, the lakes are frozen. So people are saying, well, maybe they were in an airplane. But an airplane. Yeah, yeah, that's what I read. That's what one person said. Maybe Malvo had it where they would be dropped out of an airplane. But that would assume that Malvo knew that Smanko was going to be driving Dimitri home at that specific point. And we don't even know that Malvo knows that Dimitri's gone. And so it would just really have to have a lot. We we would have to be willing to just bury our heads completely in the sand to think that Malvo could have done that in that situation. And we'd have to almost bury our heads in the sand to think that could be some kind of act of nature. And I'm just not sure how they're going to explain that. And they're going to have to. Because the coincidence of it, even in an act of nature, is so great that it would happen at just that moment and kill Dimitri, which completes, like you said, or is doesn't complete, but is the last plague of killing the firstborn son. So I, I'm expecting big things in the explanation of this. Or are you going to write to the Motion Picture Association of America? I might. Protest with the Screenwriter's Guild. Uh, you never know. It's not nature, though, because it's Malvo's doing. Malvo doesn't, in other situations, hasn't needed to be present for it to happen. No, but we usually see some kind of setup on the stuff he's had a hand in. And I will accept it if we didn't see a setup, as long as it's something even remotely plausible. But they're going to have to make that plausible. This was thousands of huge fish that fall from the sky. We've got to, ma- and, and they're still alive. I mean, they're not as they're, you know, exploding against the windshield, but some of them on the ground are still flopping around. We've got to get an explanation of that. Do you think we will? Well, I hope you get your answers, Michelle. I would hate to be in the wrath of your un- unanswered questions. Yeah. Okay. It was kind of cyclical, though. In the beginning, man kills fish. Now fish kills man. Now, right. Back to the hospital. We see poor Creech is like, I guess she finds him finally. And uh, Lester's back sitting snug as a bug in his little bed there smirking away. Yeah, and he has the Malvo smirk on his face. The same little one side of his mouth turned up. It's like he almost embodied Malvo or something. It was really creepy. If you notice how Malvo, when he does smile... And it's not really a smile, like you said, a smirk is a better word. It's that same little one side of the mouth. It's like a contemplative one, too. Like, you can tell he's just thinking about all these things he's just done. And they're all evil. Yeah, yeah. it, It grows on his face. You see it in his eyes, the light in his eyes, where he's suddenly, he's proud of himself. He feels accomplished. He's done good. 
Let's check our death roster. So in this one episode, we see Chump get killed, Numbers get killed, Molly get killed, Samanko get killed, Dimitri gets killed, and some fish get killed. A lot of fish. That's a lot. A lot of fish. I don't believe Molly's dead, though. I well, have you hope. don't want to believe she's dead. I don't want to believe it. No. A lot of people think that now Gus is going to turn, like, almost like the torch was passed from Vern to Molly when Vern died, then Molly had to take over the common sense kind of good police work and that now Gus is going to take that over. I like Which, that. I like that take. Like, Lauren will be gone and Gus will be the, right. not Gus, but Lester will be the next Lauren. Like like Malvo's right. job in life is to turn people into him and then leave and go off other places and do it again and again. Well, that's horrifying. So what are you having for dinner tonight, Michelle? Some nice fish? Yeah, I think Lots. I'm going to just gut a fish and fry it whole. Yeah, it was and disgusting. Yeah, that did not look good. <laughs> but what do I know? That's about all I got. Do you have anything else? Did you uh, do you want to talk about Bird Ann's ass? I'm sure you looked it up. I did look it up. Um, I found a lot of information on that. And again, as with many of the parables, I I think it brought up more questions. Well, I think it's supposed to do that. Yeah, but that was interesting, didn't you think? I mean, the whole. Uh, the, the paradox of it and how it's kind of like a, a question between rationality and free will. and Yeah, it's pretty strongly related to Gus. Like Gus can't decide what to do in life. He, the only reason he became a cop was the mail, the post office was closed that day or something or was a holiday. And uh, yeah. he, was a hiring he, freeze, he yeah. can't decide he wants to wait, like, wait, Molly, don't run after that guy. And so he wants to wait. And then when he does decide, it's a really bad decision to just shoot into the blank of the snow and maybe kill Molly. So this this indecision on a on a inability to make decision. It really makes me think of Gus. What do I do? You know, this guy's stalking me at my apartment. I guess I'll send Greta away, but I didn't call it in. I checked my, you know, he's kind of wishy-washy waffling everything. That's interesting. It made me think more of Lester and the path of least resistance, kind of, you know, because I, that's funny because I definitely related it more to Lester and how he seems to be. Um, you know, he's the the donkey in this situation, and which one's easier? He needs a resolution in his life, so what's the easiest thing to do? Get a divorce? No, he'll just whack her in the head with a hammer. And all of the, the you know, the, the situations that he's put in that he seems to, all he had to say to Malvo was no. That's all he had to say, but he wouldn't do it. He couldn't get that out. Yeah, I don't think the bird ends ass dilemma is monopolized by any one character, though. Like, I think, you know, it relates to Gus, but what about, like, Stavros? Stavros had to decide what to do, and he struggled with it, and then he finally had a little bit of momentum to go to one one decision. And what about, like, Bill? Bill's, like, stymied by everything until Molly finally brings him enough evidence that he has to be tilted towards one, you know, one decision. So I don't think it's one person. It's kind of the 
dilemma everyone faces, right? What do I, what, what circumstances cause me to make a decision in between these two polarizing uh, thoughts or choices? Well, right. Um, what is it? The the rational mind that does that, or is it um, something else that that drives these um, life altering decisions and the difference between life and death in a lot of situations? And I think you're right. I just related it more to Lester because when you think about the donkey standing between two bells of hay. And which one does he choose? And they're equally appealing. Um, something makes you choose one or the other. And the theory behind that is, is the path of least resistance or the thing that's most desirable. And that there's always an answer, even if you don't know what the answer is. So I just, these parables, I'm getting a lot out of them. And, um, I even like relating it to my own life. So I I really like how they're doing that. And I love reading about it ahead of time and then trying to uh, make the puzzle pieces fit together, which they never do perfectly, I don't think, but they do enough that we can see some comparisons. Well, and, that's and, the goal of the, that's the goal of the show's creators to get people to think and instead of just watching for an hour and then turning your TV off and going on your merry way, you're like, People are doing podcasts. People are talking around the water cooler. People are thinking in the quiet of night, like, what does this mean? You know, what does that parable mean to me? It's it's brilliant. You know, it's really good. It's really, it, it gets you wrapped up in this show more than just the one hour it's on TV. It really does. It's good TV and it's uh, nestled in with tons of other good TV that's on right now, I think. Um, for this to stand out like it's standing out, nestled in between great Game of Thrones and Mad Men and uh, Silicon Valley and 24 and Louis. Louis is captivating me. Louis is captivating me. I'm thinking about Louis all the time. So for this to stand out in the midst of just brilliant TV, I think is a... Uh, Definitely a, a nod to the Coen brothers and how how great they are with this kind of thing. And, of course, the writers and producers and whoever else has stuff to do with it. But And who does shave the barber? <laughs> that's the next episode. Who shaves that's, the barber? That's a good question. Good uh, question. It was funny this weekend, last weekend, I had a garage sale. And uh, I was trying to throw away some my some garage some garages some garbage <laughs> cans. My brother's like, "How the hell are you going to throw away those garbage cans? There, you're going to put them out. The garbage man's not going to take them." So I had to put garbage cans inside of other. Garbage you really cans. do. We've done that before. No kidding. So you that cannot was my, throw away a garbage. That was can my parable. It was like sign. My brother's like that happened on Seinfeld. Couldn't throw away an old garbage can. Yeah, you can't. They're not going to take a garbage can. That that is great. That's funny, Mike. So parables are practical in everyday life. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you found some practical use for it. So next week we'll watch Who Shaves the Barber. And in the meantime, if you want to write to us, you can write to our Facebook page, uh, Facebook slash Fargo TV, uh, or our website, westcoastproject.com. And that's about it. Unless you have anything else, that's it for me, Michelle. 
Uh, no, that's it. All that's right. Good. See you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.